final interview of this program is with Dr. Shauna Willey, who began our conversation by presenting a patient from her practice. This was a 23-year-old woman who came to see me having been established and tested as a BRCA1 carrier. She was interested in pursuing prophylactic mastectomies and was particularly interested in pursuing nipple-sparing mastectomies. I thought this was an interesting case, one aspect, because she's so young. She had her genetic testing when she was 21 and decided to have her prophylactic breast surgery at age 23, which I think in all of our practices is quite young. And she told me that she had received some criticism about being so proactive about her care. She actually liked the phrase previvor for people in her situation. So she was trying to prevent something bad happening. She felt that her breasts were a time bomb, and I think that's something that we all hear patients say. There's this fear that goes along with a prospective cancer diagnosis. They know they're at high risk. She had a strong family history. She had a known BRCA1 mutation in her family. So she really wanted to be proactive and take care of this at a very young age. And I thought that was somewhat remarkable. She was very well aware of her own opinion and her own decision and very sure about that and didn't let people sway her. How did you go about doing the procedure? And are there any options in terms of cosmesis or things that you consider? What was her breast size, incidentally? She had a B slash C cup breast. And that's very important patient selection for nipple-sparing mastectomy. I think in a patient who's having prophylactic mastectomy, we need to look at not only breast size, but degree of ptosis. And we have to make a selection about where we're going to place our incision. And this, again, is a very common question we get when we together as surgeons talk. Where do you place your incision? Where's the best place to put the incision? In my opinion, cosmetically, the best incision location is inframammary fold. But there are reasons not to put an incision at the inframammary fold. And some of those have to do with blood supply to the nipple areolar complex. If it's a patient who has cancer in her breast, some of that may be because of the location of the tumor. Maybe a degree of ptosis that would not allow you to really reach the upper pole of the breast through an inframammary incision. Besides the site of incision, what are some of the other variables that are considered in this? Is it pretty straightforward, the procedure itself? Well, the procedure itself, I think, is a very challenging procedure. It's technically a difficult operation. We are not sacrificing any skin at all, so blood supply to the skin is important. It's important not to leave any breast tissue behind. If you're doing a prophylactic operation on someone, you don't want to do an incomplete mastectomy. And you want to be able to clear all of the breast tissue as much as possible. So visualization, staying in the right plane. The other thing that I get common question about is how to manage the subareolar tissue. There has been a lot of discussion about whether or not it's safe to leave the nipple behind in perhaps a patient who's at very high risk, like a gene mutation carrier, or even a patient who might have cancer in the breast aren't we leaving cancer cells behind or breast cells behind? Is there that potential? Do we have long-term follow-up to say that this is a safe operation? My routine is that I take the tissue from immediately under the nipple areolar complex. I send that as a separate specimen to pathology, and I don't do a frozen section on it. 
the frozen sections, actually the American Society of Breast Surgeons has a nipple sparing mastectomy registry and just presented some data looking at frozen section analysis of that tissue. And we found that it's not reliable enough to really make a decision about how you're going to handle the nipple intraoperatively. So I always send that off as a permanent section. I mark the location of the nipple on the specimen so that we can correlate those locations. And then we wait until we get final pathology results back. If you do have tumor involvement, then what? Then we have to talk with the patient about removing the nipple. The options there are, I've seen the range of atypical ductal hyperplasia in that tissue, lobular carcinoma in situ in that tissue. I've actually never seen invasive carcinoma in that tissue. And I think that really speaks to the selection criteria that we exercise. But in the patients who have ductal carcinoma in situ, we would definitely recommend removal of the nipple areolar complex. We used to do it within a week or two of the operation. Then after we had removed nipples and we found that very few patients have residual DCIS in the nipple areolar complex, we started electing to do that portion of the operation at the time that they have their expander exchange if they had a two-staged reconstruction. And that's actually worked out much better for us. So about three months after their prophylactic mastectomy or their nipple-sparing mastectomy, we would do their expander exchange, take the nipple off at that time. What are the criteria to use nipple-sparing surgery in patients with invasive breast cancer in your mind? Well, we've written on this, and we, I will say, have to look at each individual patient and look at not only the imaging characteristics and physical exam, but we generally try not to do a nipple-sparing mastectomy in patients who have multifocal disease, patients who have tumors within two centimeters of the nipple areolar complex, or tumors greater than three centimeters. That being said, there are times when you get fooled. You find that somebody has a multifocal cancer and you've done a nipple-sparing mastectomy on them, or their tumor may be centrally located, but it's quite posterior in the breast. So although if you're looking at the breast as a clock, it seems like it's close to the nipple, but from an anterior to posterior plane, it can be four centimeters from the nipple. So what's this woman's current situation? This woman is about two years out from her surgery. She's absolutely delighted. One of the things that I think is important to talk about with these young women especially is the effects that this operation can have on their social sexual well-being after their operation. And I've had very frank discussions with her about that, and she is now in a committed relationship. I think it was interesting that she did this operation when she was in the process of dating. Now she's in a committed relationship. She feels that she made absolutely the right choice. She's happy. I follow her on an annual basis, and she's had no problem since the operation. How would you compare, you know, the cosmetic impact of this in terms of how things look now compared to previous to surgery, how things feel there, whether she has any dysesthetic or, you know, problems with that, and, you know, from that point of view, how she compares now to before she has the surgery? Well, she had chosen to have her breasts reconstructed slightly larger than she was before. I always talk to patients that they should expect to be numb or have no sensation of the nipples. The appearance is quite good. Looking at her face on, you cannot see her incisions. 
You honestly can't tell she's had bilateral mastectomies. I have found that over time, and I've been doing nipple sparing mastectomies for about, the first one I did was about 14 years ago. I have found that over time, the patients do get some return of sensation, but it doesn't return to normal. And that is bothersome to some patients. Some patients, it's not bothersome to. I think that's very individual. And what kinds of discussions have gone on with this lady in terms of her ovaries? She wants to have children. She understands that her ovaries at some point will be removed. She plans to do that. It's especially important for her because she had a grandmother who was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer. So she is quite aware of that risk. In most of these women, we discuss with them that they should anticipate having their ovaries removed once they're done with childbearing. I think it does put them a little bit on a timeline that might be accelerated more than they would have been had they not been identified as a gene mutation carrier. But it is something that they don't want to give up in most cases as young as she is. Is there kind of an arbitrary age that you want to see these women having their ovaries out by? Most of the recommendations are between age 35 to 40 or if they are done with childbearing. Some women are done with childbearing a little earlier than that. After age 40, if they haven't met their life partner, we sometimes talk to them about having fertility preservation. A couple of questions. You know, she elected to have the surgery. She also could have elected to just be followed. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with those various aspects of these kinds of cases, not just patients with BRCA mutations, but people at high risk, maybe beginning with screening and MRI, how that fits into the way you manage these people? Well, certainly in patients who are gene mutation carriers, MRI annually is the current recommendation and is definitely a tool that we use at a very young age. In fact, there's a lot of controversy about using mammograms in women this young as a screening tool, not only because of the radiation exposure, but also because of the inefficacy of detection. MRI detects things much earlier. It's much more sensitive in this very young age group. Incidentally, how young can someone be and still have you send them for an MRI? Well, this patient, I did get an MRI preoperatively. One might say, well, why would you do that? You're going to take her breasts off. But I think it's important to know whether... Well, first of all, she did not decide immediately to have the surgery. Second of all, I prefer to know what I'm dealing with in the breast because I don't want to have an occult invasive malignancy present that I might have wanted to do a sentinel node biopsy for. And I have, although before the use of MRI, I use sentinel node biopsy a little more often in prophylactic mastectomy patients because of the rate of occult invasive malignancy at about 5 to 6%. But since the use of MRI, we did a study looking at our miss rate, so to speak, of invasive cancers in negative MRIs, and we found that we didn't miss invasive cancers in the 150 patients we looked at. There were a couple DCISs that were not identified by MRI, but it really changed my practice so that I quit even really thinking about sentinel node biopsy in these prophylactic patients. So again, if you know a patient, for example, has a BRCA mutation, at what age do you recommend starting screening with MRI? Usually at age 25, although it does depend 
somewhat on the age that a family member was diagnosed. I think the younger a family member was diagnosed, the earlier we're more aggressive about screening. And actually, the patients want that screening earlier because they have that own personal experience of an early malignancy. What about risk reduction with pharmacologic agents? I guess it's been about 15 years now since the first NSABB tamoxifen prevention trial came out, and there's a lot of excitement at that time, but kind of it seems like it really hasn't taken off at all. Is that your take, or do you have a lot of patients who are getting treated? Are you talking about gene mutation carriers or just all high-risk patients? Both, both. Well, I think that in gene mutation carriers, it's interesting, certainly if they're BRCA1 carriers, We know that about 75% of those patients are triple negative. And although you may have a subset of patients who might benefit from chemo prevention, it's probably not as great a number as if the patients are BRCA2 carriers. BRCA2 carriers seem to get the same distribution of ER positivity as sporadic breast cancers. So in that group, chemo prevention may be more effective. I do have some patients who are gene mutation carriers who have chosen to be followed with MRIs annually, mammograms annually. We alternate by six months. We do breast exams with someone in their care team every four months. I find that they don't go on tamoxifen as often as I think they would want to. As far as the other high-risk patients, patients who may have a strong family history, patients who may have a history of atypical ductal hyperplasia or lobular carcinoma in situ, I agree with you that the acceptance rate of tamoxifen is much lower than I would have expected it to be based on the STAR trial and some of the early studies about tamoxifen. I think tamoxifen is a drug that is a good drug. Millions of women have taken that drug, and we know what the safety profile of it is, and yet the acceptance by the population is not what we would think it would be from the benefit of reducing the risk of invasive breast cancer. What do you think the greatest concern is that either physicians or patients have about it? What I hear most patients worry about with tamoxifen are the side effects of maybe early menopause, hot flashes, weight gain, depression, those things. And then, interestingly enough, the risk of uterine cancer, which I spend many hours discussing with patients and trying to boil those risks down to absolute numbers so that if the incidence of uterine cancer is 1% and you double that risk, that becomes a pretty small absolute risk compared to the benefit of a 50% reduction of breast cancer, which has a 12% risk. But patients have heard bad things about tamoxifen, and it's very hard to change their minds about it. When you have a premenopausal patient in this situation, and they ask you, if I take tamoxifen, am I going to increase my risk of endometrial cancer? How do you respond? Well, I respond to them that based on the early studies that were done with tamoxifen, that side effect profile, that increased incidence of endometrial cancer, the increased incidence of thromboembolic events, were really most marked in the over 50 age group. I also tell them that the younger they are that they go on the tamoxifen, the longer they get the benefit from it. And They tend not to have problems with the hot flashes and those kinds of side effects, nor menstrual irregularities if they go on it in their earlier years, for instance, in their early 40s. I also try to tell them that they get benefit for 
at least 10 years, we've demonstrated that patients get benefit for at least 10 years, perhaps even longer, as far as risk reduction goes. So if they're even considering going on tamoxifen, I try to talk them into going on it early, at least trying it to see if they have any side effects. Because my experience is with premenopausal women, they have very few side effects associated with it. You know, speaking of duration, maybe I'll just divert out for a second and ask for your thoughts about the presentation at the December San Antonio breast cancer meeting, an invasive breast cancer of five versus 10 years of tamoxifen, a so-called ATLAS study, which seemed to show a little bit of a benefit to extending tamoxifen duration. Any thoughts about that? Well, I've been in practice long enough that I have seen us change the optimal duration of tamoxifen multiple times. So when I was first in practice, it was recommended that people be on tamoxifen six months, then five years, then indefinitely, then back to five years, now we're to 10 years. I think that there is a demonstrated benefit with longer tamoxifen therapy, and it does make sense. At one time, we thought there might be a detriment to being on it longer. I'm going to answer also your question by saying what my patients are asking about and what they're saying. Everybody heard about it. Uh, The news got out about tamoxifen, and everybody who's on tamoxifen is asking that question. Am I going to stay on it longer? Should I stay on it longer? And I think that the practice I'm seeing with my medical oncology colleagues is that they're discussing that option with patients, and many of the patients are staying on it longer than the five years. Yeah, I'm hearing kind of the same thing, particularly, I guess, if they're doing well at that point. If you know, It seems a lot of times when people have had problems with tamoxifen, they've already been switched. And it also brings up the issue of duration of other adjuvant hormonal therapies, particularly aromatase inhibitors. And we're still waiting for definitive trial data on that, but what are your thoughts about continuing those beyond five years? Well, I think it's going to be an analogous situation, or I think it's possibly going to be an analogous situation where the patients are potentially going to get benefit, the question is going to be how much benefit versus the side effect profile. And the aromatase inhibitors, interestingly enough, I think have a side effect profile that's very bothersome to some patients. And when it's bothersome, it's not mild. They have severe joint pains, myalgias, they ache, they're stiff. And women worry about their bone density and whether they're going to continue to have bone density loss. So I agree with you, if patients are tolerating it well, they're disease-free, they feel like they've been protected by this drug, they're more than willing to stay on it longer. I have some patients who have been on an aromatase inhibitor for more than 10 years, and their oncologist says they don't plan to take them off of it, either because they had high-risk disease or they're just doing well and they're tolerating it well. I think it will be interesting also When we say somebody has high-risk disease, some of these studies where people have been on these drugs for 10 years, high-risk may need to be redefined. Certainly, if they're node positive, we think they need more protection, but that using some of the oncotype profiling, we may find that the patients who actually are at higher risk of late recurrences are those who clinically don't appear to be high-risk, and they may benefit the most from these agents. Let's talk about your second case, your 76-year-old lady. Okay, this is a woman that, interesting to your prior question, had a history of atypical ductal hyperplasia. She had chosen not to take tamoxifen chemoprevention. I've been following her for many, many years. 
She developed a new mammographic abnormality located at about the 8 to 9 o'clock position of her left breast. We did a core biopsy, and it was found to be highly ERPR positive. HER2 initially was read as 2+, plus, but FISH was unamplified. And this is a patient that I certainly felt was a great candidate for breast-conserving surgery. She is 76 years old. She does have a high ER status. And we have recently started doing intraoperative radiation therapy. So this is a patient that I considered for intraoperative radiation therapy. This is off-study. We are doing it as a registry at our hospital, and we are eagerly awaiting the Target U.S. trial to open, which we hope to be a site for. So is this the Target machine that you're using? The IntraBeam, yes. So there's only one intraoperative machine then? But there are other intraoperative machines. There's the Mobitron and Zoft all have intraoperative ways to deliver radiation. So maybe you can keep going in terms of what happened. So I do evaluate these patients with an MRI preoperatively because we do want to make sure that this is a single site of tumor. And it was the only site of tumor that she had. So we talked with her about intraoperative radiation. She arguably is a patient who, if she has a small tumor, strongly ER positive, node negative, you might even consider no radiation in her. However, she's a very healthy, vibrant 76-year-old, and she did opt to have intraoperative radiation. The way we do this is that I do a sentinel node biopsy on these patients, and in this case, I do a frozen section because I like to know whether their nodes are positive in regards to delivering intraoperative radiation therapy. I do the excision in the operating room. I like to use ultrasound while I'm doing the excision so that I can increase my chances of having negative margins. And then if things all look favorable, we go ahead and put the applicator in the cavity where the tumor was located and the radiation is delivered. What about partial breast irradiation? Is that something that you also do? And what do you think about it? I have done partial breast irradiation for probably 10 years. I think it's a very good option for patients. I believe that partial breast irradiation in whatever form we finally end up doing it, and there's lots of different catheter-based ways to do it. You can do it with external beam. But just like we discovered that breast-conserving surgery was an option for some patients, I believe that giving partial breast irradiation is a good option for some patients. And I think the key with all of this lies in the selection criteria. I've always been curious about the issue of oncoplasty. I've talked to Mel Silverstein about it a few times, and I know you're interested in that. Can you make some comments about that? To be honest with you, I mean, I'm not a surgeon. I never quite really grasped exactly what it entails. I mean, was it involved in this lady's surgery, for example? Well, in its simplest form, I would like to think that every operation is an oncoplastic operation because hopefully, as we all do these operations, we're trying to get the best oncologic outcome and the best cosmetic outcome. So there's certainly techniques that you can use to try to optimize those outcomes in patients. But when when you talk to Mel Silverstein or when you talk about oncoplastic reconstruction, which is a phrase that we use at our institution, we're really talking about rearranging tissue and possibly even operating on the other breast to attain symmetry and the same degree of ptosis and size. So 
Oncoplastic, I think, is a very complex option as far as decision-making goes in as far as optimizing the cosmetic outcome. As an oncologic operation, we know how to do that oncologic operation. But to use that within the context of trying to get the best cosmetic outcome becomes very complex. And your question at this point with this case, it's very interesting because I think the marriage of intraoperative radiation therapy or partial breast irradiation with balloon brachytherapy or some type of device brachytherapy, as it is aligned with the oncoplastic reconstructions, is an interesting and complex decision-making tree. From the point of view of sort of patient convenience, I'm kind of curious, kind of the discussion that you had with this lady about the type of surgery and also the interoperative radiation. She's 76 years old. You said she was in good condition. Could you talk a little bit about the discussion that you had with her in terms of the type of surgery and radiation? Well, I talk with the patients about the standard operation that I would do in any setting, even without interoperative radiation, of course, is the lumpectomy and the sentinel node biopsy. That's a pretty standard preoperative informed consent. How about mastectomy for her? I always give patients the option of a mastectomy. However, I also tell them whether I think they're a good candidate or not for a lumpectomy. Some patients will say to me, I don't want radiation. And I say, if you don't want radiation, then I don't think a lumpectomy is a good choice for you, except in very selected situations. Sometimes that's a little bit of a long discussion to try to tease out what the objections to radiation are, why somebody might prefer a mastectomy to a lumpectomy. This patient wanted the least amount possible that still would be considered the most care, if that makes sense. And she is very much into her appearance. She absolutely wanted to look as close to normal as she could look after this operation. Intraoperative radiation was, in my opinion, a good choice for her also because she lives a little bit farther away than where I operate. As I said, she's been a long-term patient of mine and she has traveled to see me a little bit farther than when she first started seeing me. And I talked to them about, you have the potential to have all of your local regional treatment with one trip to the operating room. And I say that as a potential because if we found that she had a positive node, if we found that she had positive margins, then we would go ahead and give her whole breast radiation. In fact, I just had a case like that where a patient wanted to have partial breast irradiation. She had a small 1.1 centimeter tumor, Elston 6, node negative clinically, and lo and behold, on her sentinel node biopsy, it was grossly positive, and at that point, then, I would convert that to whole breast radiation because we're not participating with the NSABP protocol for APBI in high-risk patients. Any sense where we are today? It seems like forever that, you know, we've talked about the issue of breast conservation versus mastectomy, and yet it still seems to be an important topic any sense right now about how this is actually playing out in clinical care? I've heard some people say they think there's been a shift towards more mastectomies. You know, there's a lot of continued controversy the last two, three decades, it seems like. What's your perception of that whole longstanding discussion? Well, I think there's still a lot of misperceptions on patients' parts about the efficacy of a lumpectomy followed by radiation versus a mastectomy. 
there is still the thought that a mastectomy must be better. And in some regards, depending on what your parameter is you're looking at, a mastectomy may be better. I have long discussions with patients that the recurrence rate, for instance, after a partial mastectomy may be a little bit higher. Some recent data might show that it's even lower than a mastectomy. There's also the question of imaging. Patients wear out. If they have a lot of imaging abnormalities, if they have a history of having had multiple biopsies, and now finally they are diagnosed with cancer, they're tired of the whole process. And they see the mastectomy as a way of avoiding some of that process. Now, I think it's very important to make sure that patients understand that you cannot guarantee they will not have a cancer event after they've had a mastectomy, because we've certainly all seen recurrences after mastectomies, and they're devastating for patients. And it's sometimes very difficult to know how to treat those patients, depending on what kind of treatment they've had before. But patients seem to have very strong opinions about this. There's lots of talk about it. They are reasonably well-informed, but I still think that there is a perception that a mastectomy is a better operation for some people than a lumpectomy. You know, one of the issues in this difficult or challenging discussion is sort of the psychology of having a mastectomy versus partial surgery. And I'm kind of curious because another person on the same audio program as you is Pat Borgen. And when we chatted, he was kind of alluding to the question of whether or not female surgeons view this situation differently than male surgeons. Any thoughts? Well, I'm aware of a study that, and I can't quote you the citation, looking at exactly that. I think it's probably 20 years old. And that was actually demonstrated that women surgeons more often did mastectomies than male surgeons did. That's what he was saying. I think that it's an interesting phenomenon. I think that on the one hand, if you're a male surgeon and you tell a woman that she needs a mastectomy, you are very careful that you couch that in data and not in emotion. Whereas women surgeons may counsel patients slightly differently in that if you tell me you want a mastectomy, I understand that. I have had several radiologists who are patients of mine who develop breast cancer who would have been candidates for breast conserving surgery and opted for bilateral mastectomies. And I find that an interesting group that has chosen to be that aggressive. Getting back to this lady, now, let me ask you something. You say she's 76 years old. She sounds like a healthy 76-year-old? Yes. Could you envision this lady getting adjuvant chemotherapy? I mean, let's say instead of being node negative, she were node positive. Could you imagine her getting chemo? Well, I think that's a situation where, from a medical health perspective, she certainly could tolerate it. I don't know emotionally if she could tolerate it. She's a very high-strung, anxiety-provoked patient. In fact, she and I had long discussions, as did her and her medical oncologist, whether or not we would do an oncotype on her. That was exactly what I was going to ask you, but that sort of preceded it. <laughs> yes, and we finally decided that she was fairly much in favor of not getting chemotherapy. She didn't want chemotherapy unless we told her she absolutely had to have chemotherapy. And at age 76, I'm not sure that I would have pushed her. 
I think the hardest thing would have been if we had gotten a high oncotype and everything else didn't quite go along with that. And then really, what would her benefit from chemotherapy be? So we actually, after much discussion, decided that we would not order an oncotype, that we would treat her with an aromatase inhibitor, which even that she was worried about being able to tolerate. Remember, she was averse to taking tamoxifen way back when she was diagnosed with ADH. So I think it's important to talk to patients and to try to tailor within the construct of what would be reasonable care, what applies to them and what they can tolerate. Interesting. When you do do some type of an analysis to try to decide whether you use adjuvant chemotherapy, you have the oncotype, you have the mamiprint, there are other assays being developed. For practical purposes, how do you approach the question of which one? Well, in our practice, we use oncotype most of the time. At Georgetown, we participate in the iSpy trial, and mamiprint is used very much in that trial to try to stratify and to choose patients for study. It's much easier now that mammoprint can be done on paraffin-embedded tissue. It was very difficult when we had to get fresh tissue, but they've overcome that barrier, and I think that's going to make mammoprint more usable. I think that there's a comfort level with Oncotype. It's been around a bit longer. It's been used in the U.S. more. I know that in Europe, mammoprint is more widely used. I think we're going to keep developing, and we're going to find out which is going to have the most applicability, both as prognostic and predictive. I mean, right now, there's not a gigantic amount of data. I guess in terms of prediction, there's more data for Oncotype, but there's a bunch of gigantic trials cooking, so to speak, that we're waiting for data. I don't know exactly when we're going to get at the Taylor X study, and now the RX Ponder for Oncotype, and no negative, no positive. And again, as you say, in Europe, more interest in mammoprint. They have the Mindex study. It'll be interesting to see that. And also the iSpy study that uses the mammoprint too. So I'm not sure exactly how long it's going to take to get this second generation of data, but I imagine it's coming fairly soon. Well, at least in parts. And that was the beauty, or that is the beauty of the iSpy trial. It's really almost a real-time assessment of response to chemotherapy because you do the mamma print, you stratify to high or low risk, and then you give the preoperative chemotherapy, you get to see what the response is. And that may be a way for us to get data in a shorter time frame. That's a really fascinating initiative. How about your third patient, the 30-year-old woman? This is a young woman who came to me with a breast mass. It was in the superior right breast. She had about a B-cup breast. And this was found to be highly suspicious for malignancy. She'd only had an ultrasound. She'd not had a mammogram based on her age. And she had a ultrasound-guided core biopsy, showed an Elston score of 6, ER greater than 90%, PR 75%, HER2 3+. She had a high KI67 at greater than 90%. This was a lovely young woman who came in with her fiancé to whom she had just gotten engaged, and they were planning their wedding for about a year from the time she was diagnosed. We went ahead and did a full workup on her. Family history was not very strongly positive. Maternal aunt diagnosed at a postmenopausal age, although we did do genetic testing on this patient as far as breast cancer genes, and the genetic testing was non-informative. We did a whole workup on her, and we do this in patients that we are considering for preoperative chemotherapy because she was HER2-3+. 
I felt she would be a good candidate for preoperative chemotherapy because those are patients that we tend to see a good response in. Also, if I had done a lumpectomy on her at the time that she was diagnosed, it would have been a fairly large volume of her breast tissue, and I felt that it would not give us the best cosmetic result. And I thought there was no question that she was going to need chemotherapy. So in that setting, I think you have to decide, does the patient need chemotherapy, and then decide the sequence based on the parameters. In patients that were considering for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I do an MRI, and in fact, she was considered for some of our preoperative clinical trials. And we also do a staging workup. In her particular case, when we did her staging workup, she was found to have several small liver lesions on her CT scan. And these were read initially as consistent with metastases. And of course, we would like to define whether somebody really has stage four disease, and we'd like to do that with a tissue diagnosis. And we made two attempts at doing CT-guided biopsies. Only one of these lesions was really in a good location that was amenable to core needle biopsy. Unfortunately, in both cases, we got normal liver tissue back. However, when we then did an MRI to evaluate further, the radiologist felt very strongly that this was most consistent with metastatic disease, and therefore we staged her as a stage 4 patient. In that setting, then, we, of course, evaluated her axilla. She was clinically node negative. There was no imaging evidence of any axillary nodal involvement, and she was started on a combination of docetaxel, trastuzumab, and pertuzumab. She was diagnosed shortly after pertuzumab had been approved for first-line therapy in patients with metastatic disease. So she was started on that combination, and she completed six cycles of chemotherapy. And at that point, we re looked at the issue of what we were going to do next. She had a repeat CT scan. The liver lesions had actually gotten smaller, and that was also felt to be indicative that those lesions were consistent with metastatic disease. What was interesting is that when we did her breast workup, an MRI showed complete resolution of the mass, which on MRI had measured 3.4 centimeters prior to starting chemotherapy. Ultrasound showed no abnormalities. And we were at that point where we had to have that discussion as to what do we do now surgically. This is a difficult decision because there's no good data to base that discussion on. I guess one of the issues here is, you know, what's the role of, you know, removal of a primary lesion in a patient who has metastatic disease? Pretty controversial being looked at in a trial right now. What's your take on that? Well, it is controversial, and it's controversial because we don't have any randomized prospective trials that tell us the right answer. There are some studies that have looked retrospectively at large databases. Seema Khan has looked at this, looking at the National Cancer Database. The SEER database has also been looked at. And my take on all that literature is that there is benefit, as measured by prolongation of progression-free survival, if you excise the primary tumor with clear margins. Now, some people will argue, and I've heard Kirby Bland argue this, that all of these have selection biases, that we really select out the best patients to operate on. 
And that's why I think there's a big cry for a prospective randomized study, which ECOG is conducting right now. CIMACON is a PI on that. And hopefully we can get enough patients enrolled in that that we will be able to answer this question and figure out who will benefit from surgery versus not. Now, I think it's also interesting because here we have a new agent that may throw this off a bit because in my patient's particular case, we elected to do an excision of the area where the clip was. And I think that's important that you have a clip in place, placed at the time of her initial core biopsy. She had complete histologic response. And we may find that this combination actually does work much better than what we had prior to this. So your rationale to do this surgery was the hope that somehow it was going to affect the course of the metastatic disease? It was really almost a diagnostic procedure to say, we actually talked long and hard. Are we just going to do another core biopsy? Would we just biopsy around where the clip was? And if that was negative, we'd say that we got complete histologic response. There are some studies looking at whether you can do that. Just if you get complete resolution on your MRI of all the enhancement attributed to the tumor, could you do a core biopsy? If that's negative, simply observe the patient. And I think that in the context of a study, we may find that that's a very reasonable approach. In this case, I have to preface this by saying that the patient talked to me about having bilateral mastectomies. And so I was trying to back down from bilateral mastectomy. So I thought I did pretty good getting her to the point of just needing an excision. But at least we could prove with an excision that there was no residual tumor. We elected not to do any nodal evaluation. That's never really been shown to have a beneficial effect. A big question in her now is whether or not radiation should be delivered. At this point, I have counseled her that I am not convinced there's any data that shows benefit from giving radiation in this setting. In fact, I think in her situation, it may be good not to have the breast radiated because if she had a recurrence, if she had a new tumor, we could then do breast conserving surgery again. 